0: All right, our next speaker today is Paul Guppy. He is Vice President for Research at Washington Policy Center. He came to Washington Policy Center in 1988 after 12 years on the staff of the U.S. Congress, including service as Legislative Director, Chief of Staff, and with the White House Appropriations Committee, with a focus on budget policy and federal spending. He is the author of numerous published studies and articles Including the Washington State Piglet Book, and is editor of the Policy Guide for Washington State. He specializes in state and local tax systems, healthcare reform, and free market economics. He is a member of the King County Citizens Election Oversight Committee, the Citizen Commission for Performance Measurement of Tax Preferences, and the Attorney General's Eminent Domain Task Force. In addition, Paul writes Washington Policy Center's monthly column in Spokane's Spokesman Review newspaper. Paul is a graduate of Seattle University and holds graduate degrees in political science from Claremont Graduate University and the London School of Economics. He lives in Seattle with his wife, Diana, and their three children. Please welcome Paul. Thank you.
1: see if I can use the stand here to hold this. There we go. Well, thank you for the introduction and the opportunity to be here today. First thing I'll do is remember to send you an updated bio because I have four kids now, so (laughs) we've added since then. Uh, So first, a couple of quick announcements, I think, is you mentioned I'm editor of the Washington Policy Center Policy Guide, and I brought copies today that are on the display table out in back. So if anyone wants to pick up a copy of this, that's available for you, or you can contact uh, our office at WashingtonPolicy.org, and we can provide this. There's a chapter on here written by our transportation expert, Mike Annis, about transportation policy. And speaking of which, my remarks today are based on Mike's uh, research about the Columbia River crossing, and he recently had a a column in the Columbian, and again, there are copies here. So my remarks are based on the work that Mike has done, and that's summarized in this short piece right here. So that's so you can follow up on on what I have to say. Uh, Last quick announcement is... Washington Policy Center is doing a legislative wrap-up reception rather, this coming Wednesday at the Heathman Lodge, so that's June 8th at 5 o'clock, so if anyone would like to come to that, it's a free event, and we've been doing these legislative wrap-up sessions around the state, just telling people what happened in Olympia and updating them on the current news. So regarding this project we've been talking about tonight, and what I'll try to do is to bring Kind of a different perspective from what you heard. Uh, the great information we've heard from speakers already, and that is really just to make four points. Again, from a policy analyst point of view. So many of you know, Washington Policy Center is an independent nonprofit think tank. We're based in Seattle. We deal with statewide issues all around Washington State, uh, and in this case, involving Oregon as well. But. Because we're not part of the government, we really try to step outside and look at projects like this from an independent point of view, more the point of view of the ordinary citizen, the ordinary driver on the road who wants to use public services, and also the ordinary taxpayer. And so I'll I'll make four points about that. First is, what strikes me about this project is the tremendous complexity and, and bureaucratic nature of it. So there are eight government agencies involved. So that makes you scratch your head right there. Why are there... So many cooks involved in putting together this project. Second, and I'm sure there are a lot of political reasons for that if you really dug into it. And uh, one element of that is why our local transit agencies in Portland and Vancouver have so much influence over what a highway project is supposed to look like like now john provided the answer to that is that this is a light rail project that happens to have some highway lanes stuck into it if you look at it that way then a lot of this structural organization why there are so many bureaucracies involved why there's so much lobbying in washington dc and the federal government is involved it's for the purpose of building a light rail project which serves the agency interests of Portland and Vancouver Monopoly transit agencies. So if you if you, recently, you mentioned I attended the London School of Economics. So there's a whole school of thought about how bureaucracies operate and how they look at the world. And state agencies and bureaucracies, they have a specific interest that doesn't always coincide with the general public interest. And I think that's the distinction that's going on here. So that brings us to you know, how, they, how we build projects today. The focus with the Columbia River crossing, again, from a policy point of view, the mission focus is not on serving the public interest, serving citizen mobility, whatever mode that might happen to be, or serving general freedom of movement in our society. What's interesting about this project is because it involves two states. So I'm sure most of you know that back in the founding of our country, the Constitution specifically says that we don't want to erect economic barriers, tolls, fees, I mean, I don't mean a user fee, but taxes, import fees, or other restrictions among interstate commerce. So what we end up with is a massive national uh, economy involving 50 states and the free movement of people and goods. Uh, The current bridge, uh, over $40 billion in freight, cross the bridge every year. 500 ships a year are served in the port of Vancouver, which connects this region to the entire world markets. These are the public interests that, I, that this project should serve. Again, freedom of mobility, citizen movement. I notice that the specific designs that are being looked at don't accomplish that. So leaving aside just the financing of it, what is it that the public is purchasing? What serves the public interest? no increase in general lane miles no increase in capacity for the for the general public as i mentioned but of course two you know the space of two lanes devoted to light rail which serves a, a, and adds 130% almost a third to the cost of the project and even by the most optimistic ridership numbers would serve less than 10% of the people that actually cross the bridge so the mission focus is not on citizen mobility it's Serving the interests of these government agencies that are involved. The second point I would make is, uh, we basically any time human beings build something, they face two kinds of barriers: natural barriers, which is crossing the Columbia River or moving a major interstate highway from one state to another. That's always been the case when the current bridge was built in 1917 and upgraded in 1958. The focus was overcoming the natural barrier in order to serve citizen mobility. The second kind of barrier is completely artificial. It's man-made. And that is, what is the bureaucratic process, the rules, the costs that are added to the project that actually don't contribute to moving people um, from one point A to point B, from one community to another, but again simply serve the interests of the agencies that are involved? So I did a quick calculation based on the cost of this one project would absorb the financial resources of our society in two states would be enough to complete most of the 143 structurally deficient bridges that are around Washington State. There are over $200 billion in uh, transportation needs, again, in Washington State. So money is being shifted from those needs to to serve this one project. And I just picked uh, for the cost of replacing the existing bridge and not adding any new capacity for general drivers, you could build the Alaska Way Viaduct in Seattle, the 520 Bridge across Lake Washington, and finish Highway 395 in Spokane. You could do all of those projects for cash and have money left over for what the cost of this project is going to cost. So there are a lot of artificial costs that have been added. Uh, My third point is really, and I think this is touched on, so I won't elaborate on it, but just to kind of pull this together, that... uh, the the entire project is really being held hostage to light rail. So the priorities are reversed. What the policymakers are saying is light rail first. Okay, light rail gets the first dollar. Then, if everyone cooperates and goes along, we'll have some general purpose lanes as well for the general public to serve that citizen mobility that I mentioned. So I, I don't think that light rail is related to actually getting the mission done. Um, So what are solutions? And again, Mike Ennis on our staff has looked into this. Not surprisingly, there is a better way. Now, I'm not going to address the question of whether the bridge should be replaced. Possibly this one could be upgraded. But what I'm addressing is if a decision is made to replace this bridge, there are models both historically and around the country about how that can be done. Now, a recent model is uh, I-35 bridge in Minneapolis, which collapsed in 2007, tragically, Uh, And the federal government and the state put a focus on replacing that bridge. It's an interstate bridge. Get it up and running. So in 414 days, they had built a brand-new, seismically strong, stronger than what was there before, a 10-lane bridge, so they increased the, the capacity of the crossing at a cost of $300 million. So because of the national impact that that dramatic destruction or collapse of that bridge had, they cut through that second kind of barrier that I was referring to, the the artificial man-made barrier. Suddenly, most of that evaporated when it came to replacing this bridge in Minneapolis. Uh, And here are the specific policies that they followed. Uh, Funding was secured up front, so they didn't have the problem that was mentioned about backloading the financing to later on. It's less risky. Uh, They streamlined permitting and environmental reviews. They used a design-build concept to build the bridge. Washington Policy Center believes in tapping the competitive uh, efficiency of the private sector, and they did that in Minneapolis. The contractor received $27 million in incentives if the project was completed early, on time, according to safety and design standards, and there were penalties on the contractor if the project was late. This tends to focus the mind of any company that is working on uh, this kind of project. Public agencies do not work under these kinds of incentives by any means. In fact, it was also mentioned that most projects are over um, schedule over-budget. Uh, my you know, sort of rule of thumb when I hear any public project or number, if I hear anything about cost, I immediately double or triple that number. Because, and that's a reliable method because you know it's going to cost more. And yet in public agencies... Individuals who work on these projects are either rewarded by being promoted or moving on to something else, but at a very at a minimum they don't get fired. If projects are over budget if I can guarantee you that if the toll revenue for this does not come in as expected eight or ten years from now, nobody's career will be threatened. the agency will simply say. We had no. How can this be? We had no idea. The toll—it's just not happening the way we expected. So we have to raise the toll. We have to have a general tax. We have to do something else. Once they lock in the cost and the 30-year bonds are obligated, the taxpayers on the hook for those permanently. They will have to come up with the money somehow. So in conclusion, I would say that there are successful models that um, are able to do this. I cited one example. There are dozens of examples, by the way. And you can cite examples in other countries as well. Where projects that are more complicated, more expensive than the Columbia River Crossing were completed at less cost and on time. Uh, So this approach controls risks. Costs are known up front, which, by the way, I think shows trust to the public. Instead of putting the public on the hook for who knows how much this is going to cost, knowing costs up front, tapping private competition, focusing on the public interest, not the interest of the agencies involved, and, uh, you know, I would say getting rid of or ignoring what I think are the narrow monopoly interests of the transit agencies are involved. In the Puget Sound area, Sound Transit promised the public that the first phase of light rail in the Seattle area would cost $3.9 billion, current cost $15 billion and that's only for what they've built so far. So in the Puget Sound area we have a light rail system which is not faster than other modes of transit and is absorbing all of those resources that I mentioned so other highway projects are neglected. I could foresee that the same problems would develop if this approach is taken with the Columbia River crossing as well. So with that, thank you.